Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, thanks to our supporting partners, We Are One Composites and Shimano. I'm a huge fan of We Are One's wheels, I've been riding them for nearly four years and in that time I've had zero issues. They're still as true as the day they arrived and I really can't say that about any of the metal rims that I've ever owned. The ride quality is awesome, striking a balance between tracking and going where you point them, but not being so stiff that they ping you off every little obstacle on the trail. I'm running a mullet set up with the slightly lighter Faction 29er up front and the tougher Union 275 at the back. The level of engineering and attention to detail that We Are One put into all their products is second to none. And if you ever peel the rim tape off one, you'll see that the finish is as good in the areas you don't see as the ones that you do. They truly care about making great wheels. We Are One don't like to stand still and they now also make handlebars and last year released their very own bike, The Arrival. I've not had the chance to ride them, but from what I know about We Are One and from the reviews that I have read, they've smashed it out of the park there too. As a downtime listener, you can get 15% off all rim-only products from We Are One during the month of March. All you need to do is to use the code WEARIMS2022. That's WEARIMS, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2022 at the checkout over on weareonecomposites.com. Shimano have recently launched their brand new GR9 shoes, which features their very own in-house developed Old Tread sole. They've designed the sole to be grippy, but not at the expense of durability. I've been using the shoes for the last few weeks and I've found that they work well for me. In some other shoes, I've felt too locked into the pedals and unable to make any micro adjustments to my foot as I'm riding. I've also found that if I'm too locked in, then it aggravates an old injury in my knee. The GR9 for me is enough grip that even on rocky trails, I've not had a problem but I've also not felt like I can't move my foot if I need to. The shoe itself is really comfortable and has a clever little booty around the ankle to stop bits of the trail ending up in your shoes. They also endured a three-hour ride in the rain without getting too wet or heavy, so they seem to be a pretty good UK winter option. If you like the sound of them, then you can check them out over at your local Shimano dealer or at mtb.shimano.com. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available if you want to support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. If you want a copy of the first issue of our print project, Downtime EP, then you can do that at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at Downtime Podcast. All right, it's time to catch up with possibly the most exciting project in mountain biking, and I'm joined today by Nico and Logan Mullally from Frameworks Racing. As you probably know, Nico's developed his own bike to race this season and built his own team around it, including his brother Logan as videographer. We sat down at Logan's place in Tennessee to chat all things Frameworks, find out what the response to the project has been like, hear how testing of the high pivot bike has gone and what Nico's planning to race in Lords. We chat about Nico's finger injury, choosing a mechanic, putting the bike into production and much more. If you're excited as I am by the racing this season and you have a team in the Pink Bike Fantasy League, then I've started a downtime podcast sub-league for you to join. Just head to the Fantasy DH section on Pink Bike, click on Join League and you should find us pretty near the top of that list. There's no password, so it's super easy to join and I'll sort the winner out with some downtime merch at the end of a season of racing. All right, without further ado, here's Nico and Logan. Team Frameworks Racing, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Nico, you've been on a few times. You know the score. Logan, first time. How's it going? First time. Good, man. Thanks for having us. It's uh, It's been a fun week and yeah, looking forward to the chat. Nice one. Good stuff. Well, 
yeah, Logan, just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe give us a little bit of background on on you and what you've been up to for the last few years, just for people that maybe aren't familiar. Well, yeah. and I guess we should point out that you are in some way related to Nika, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nika's uh, my older brother. I'm two and a half years younger than him. Um, grew up racing with Nico. We started racing BMX and then racing downhill and did it all side by side pretty much until I was 18 or 19. And then I took a step away from racing. Uh, that was the year that Nico signed to Scott in uh-huh. 2015. And uh, they were looking for a mechanic. So I was his mechanic on Scott for the two years he was on there, 15 and 16. Yeah, And then um, got away from world cup stuff and worked at uh, an online bike shop for a few years which was cool as one of our buddies owns it and it's close to my where we grew up so it just kind of made sense to do that and then like probably a lot of people in the industry and and my age at the time got sick of sitting in the office and yeah moved down here to tennessee about two hours from nico and uh yeah i've been here since 2019 um being down here was obviously more convenient for helping Nico with uh, videos and media stuff, which kind of just came up uh, because I was local uh-huh. and it made sense. And yeah, just kind of evolved from there. We started doing just like a quick little vlog thing and travel stuff and then kind of evolved into Frameworks videos that we have now. Good stuff. All right. And Nico, last time we spoke was like the launch basically of uh, of the project. How has the response been? Because... From what I've seen, there's a lot of buzz around this. Yeah, it's it's gone really well, better than better than I expected. Um, I'll say I, I I thought it would go pretty well based on my gauge of just knowing the ins and out of the industry. I thought it would be something that was interesting to core mountain bikers, but I just didn't know how many core mountain bikers were into that type of content because um, a lot of it is pretty in depth and pretty nerdy you could say (laughs) yeah yeah. um but it's a cool blend of racing and tech that is i guess proven in world cup racing so it's um something that's like directly applicable to racing um which a lot of times tech and racing are separate so to be able to explain and a lot of guys that are doing this type of stuff in racing don't want to share all their secrets which i can totally respect um, but a big part of me doing this was sharing it, sharing my whole process with the public. And, um, yeah, the, re- the initial announcement was went one better than I expected for sure. I was really stoked with all the support. Um, honestly, I love doing it and I'm really passionate about it and whether anybody liked it or not, I love it. So <laughs> I would, I would be stoked to do it. Just like a, a lot of things like trail building, building the bike parks, running the downhill Southeast series. A lot of the stuff that I do that people are really stoked that I'm doing. I'm like, well, I'm glad you guys like it, but I really like doing it. So even if nobody liked it, I would be doing it just the same. But having support and having fans following it and it creating a buzz, it gives me leverage to go to my sponsors and get some funding to do even cooler stuff. And mm-hmm. with that funding... I can, um, it's just a tool for me to do a better job at all the stuff that I'm doing. So I really appreciate all the people that are watching my videos or following along with the project, following along with me racing. Um, it just gives me, uh, 
gives me the tools to to do even more of, of this type of stuff. Yeah, so that's awesome. So that the the popularity of the project so far has started to open doors for more income potentially to drive yeah, like more project related stuff. I would say so. I mean, there was definitely a couple of sponsors that that were reaching out after the announcement, and more so for the sponsors that I had pitched the the idea to and that jumped on board. Um, even the first day of the year, like they were all sending me a message, how happy they were to be involved with it and how cool it was and how well executed they thought it was. And I just felt good to know that they were all happy with their investment and that I was delivering what I said I was going to. And this idea that was in my brain, I didn't have an example to go to them and say, here's what I've been doing. If you want to get involved, this is what you can expect. It was a new idea and a new project. And to do something new with no example is sometimes hard to get support for. So you have to get it rolling first. But the companies and brands that supported it in the beginning to see how happy they were with how it went with a launch, the first couple of videos, how they were received, and then the first couple of races we did, um, they were all really happy, like sending me messages that they were just stoked to see that they're working with somebody who is following through with everything they said they were going to do and delivering above and beyond. So um, I was just proud to have a relationship with my sponsors in that way. And um, yeah, if I say I'm going to do something, I want to do it. And I want everyone to be stoked. And I guess, yeah, it was somewhat of a relief when it all has been going this well that um, <laughs> what I said I was going to do actually worked. Yeah. Uh, the sponsors know it wasn't a scam. <laughs> yeah, you're in a good place, man. Yeah. But but Logan, does this heap the pressure on you? Like the mountain bike world is literally <laughs> watching you guys, and you're the man putting together the videos. Yeah, I guess uh, that's one way of looking at it. I kind of <laughs> feel like that at some some points too. And Nico and I definitely talked about it a lot when it was being pitched to everybody that it's kind of pitched as more of the whole media and and everything behind the scenes, just as much as it would be going to the races and racing. So yeah. I feel like it's, yeah, on me as much as maybe Nico, but we work together really well and the videos seem to be going smoothly. And uh, I think we kind of figured out a, a good formula at the moment for the uh -huh. videos that can kind of keep it fresh every week and keep it moving along, keep people interested. So yeah, in the beginning, it was a bit of pressure when the first video came out, but we got a really good response. So we just kind of fine tune it from there and keep going. Nice. You're pretty new to video making, right? This is a fairly early part of your video career. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have any background in any media, really. Um, Nico and I just started a, a vlog pretty much when COVID happened because we weren't going to the races and kind of the first vlog on Nico's channel was the first one I ever did. And we kind of just went from there and just kept progressing and kept moving forward. And Nico's always pushed me to make it better and get better shots and, you know, whatever needs to get done. So it progressed pretty quickly. And I think we have a good team uh, where Nico can help provide the necessary equipment. Uh -huh. And I like the tech side of it and cool cameras and stuff. So it makes getting that stuff fun to use. Um, and obviously it just makes it easier to make good content. Yeah. Is the kit rapidly expanding then? <laughs> At the moment, we've we've gotten to where's where the videos are getting uh, pretty good to to deal with on my side as far as the shots we want to get and the quality of production we want mm -hmm. is pretty good with the kit we have. So kind of at a standstill now, but in the first year, year and a half of making videos, we went through like five cameras and tons <laughs> of gear to get what we're looking for. Nice. And self-taught? Yeah. 
Yeah, just looking on YouTube and yeah. watching other creators. That's one thing I'm really proud of with, with the whole scope of the project is it's very DIY. Like yeah. I didn't hire a video guy that could come and only work these hours and in exchange for this price, give me the video. Like we just bought a camera and figured out how to do it. Logan is much more tech savvy than me. He knows how to use a lot of the electronic. Anybody who knows me, it's like computers and phones are that, that's not my wheelhouse. Like uh, a shovel is much more familiar to me than a cell phone. Um, so we just bought the camera and figured out how to do it. And I don't know, I just had the mindset of like, if you have the vision to do something, you can figure out how to use the tools to get there. Yeah. And we can always keep trying. Like if we make the video and, and the cut is not really what I had in mind, like we can go back to the drawing board, get more shots, try to redo it and get it to a point where it is what I had in my mind. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'm just super proud that we did it that way and that the whole project is like, we're doing it ourselves, like down to every piece of it, building the frames, everything. Like I designed them. Um, the Like a couple of people at Bike Brands reached out, was like, hey, that launch of your program was so cool. That went really well. And I was joking like, yeah, I had my whole marketing team on it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, like in the in the bike industry, I think things are made out to be, I don't know, harder and bigger deal than they are sometimes. And I just didn't think it would be that hard if if you have a good gauge of what's going on around you. So yeah. I'm proud, really proud of us doing it this way. It's good stuff. Yeah, it seems to be going awesome so far. And last time we spoke on the podcast, you'd only ridden the low pivot version of the bike thing and not you hadn't had much time on it. Um, but you've had a decent amount of time on both now. You've got the high pivot and the low pivot versions. Just give us a bit of an overview on your on your thoughts on the two bikes at the moment. Like how are you getting on with them? Yeah, so both bikes that I designed are pretty similar. I'll I'll start by saying that. Like they were never gonna be rapidly different feeling bikes. Um, they both use a similar design and I tried to isolate the changes that I wanted between the two to have an apples to apples comparison. Um, mainly because the more variables you have, the more there is to figure out what is causing the, the difference. Um, so really with the two bikes, I wanted to have a different axle path. And then whenever you have a high pivot with an either pulley, you can separate pedal kick from anti-squat. Mm -hmm. So the high pivot one in turn has a much lower pedal kick, I would say yeah. almost unnoticeable amount of pedal kick. It's it's a really nice mm -hmm. curve for the pedal kick. Um, and I wanted to kind of feel what those changing those two variables would do. And I guess the results are not that shocking to where the high pivot is nicer the rougher it gets. It's a stable bike. It's a more comfortable bike. Mm -hmm. And the low pivot feels like you can generate speed with it. It it gets around corners a lot quicker. Um, but it's a little bit harder to ride, I would say. It's okay. not as um, comfortable feeling. And I don't know. I think any race bike is the fastest option is not always the most comfortable option. You definitely don't want to ride something that you're just absolutely uncomfortable with mm -hmm. that you feel like you're not um, able to push on. But a fast bike is normally pretty stiff. Like if you go ride Eli Tomac's race bike, I'm sure it's not the most comfortable thing to mm -hmm. ride. Um, so 
I found that it's very track dependent, but even when the two bikes are in, I guess, a situation that's suited very much to one or the other, they're very close in the right. time. I've done a lot of timed runs mm -hmm. and the, the bikes are never more than 2% different in, in times. So they're both are, I could race either one. I, I, I could say. Yeah. Um, so after all this testing, I have compiled all my feedback and designed a third bike that I'll be racing in Lords. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go in too much detail because I want it to be exciting when I yeah, yeah. get that bike out. But um, my, my hope, obviously, I haven't ridden it yet. I'm we're two weeks out, and I'll get the bike next week. Things like this always take longer <laughs> than you want to. But um, my hope is that it's the best of all the qualities of each bike yeah. and um, with everything you make a compromise, but it uh, hopefully has the most positives and the least compromises. Interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, you talked about this earlier, this project is it's funded as a media project effectively at this point in time until the race results start coming in. So you've got to do the media side of it. That's super important for you, but obviously you're a racer, you want to do well and you want to get a fast bike and get the times in. Is it hard between the two of you guys to like work out a schedule that means you get all the media commitments done and get everything you want out, but you still have the time to kind of get the bike where you want to be? Um, I would say we have a good program now where we can work efficiently on it. Um, I have a coach that gives me my training schedule, so I know that weeks out, uh -huh. um, and I can plan around it. It definitely takes some time and effort. Um, a lot of times the day that I'm supposed to be, we're going to plan to go film would be a day where I could be doing a recovery ride or resting. And it's not going and filming all day is definitely not doing that, yeah. but it's part of the job. It's a necessary thing to make this program work. Uh -huh. So, um, and Logan's very efficient with the filming too. The, the camera gear that we have, Logan said we went through five cameras and we were just figuring out what would work the best. And uh -huh. a big consideration for us is him being able to ride with the camera okay so logan will ride with the camera in a hip pack and we can at the end of a he'll film a test day um do a lot of the the pit stuff where we're changing parts as the day's progressing and then at the end normally we'll go up and get the riding clips like one after the next i'll ride through the section he'll get the shot then he'll ride down to the next section get the shot so we can move a lot quicker that way yeah um rather than him standing on the hill for eight hours to get one shot every 30 minutes yeah um so yeah i think we've found a good way that works nice and of course like it, i would love i watched some of the videos and i would love to give more than just the the one test day and explain what we did to show the behind the scenes of this test day and how that affected my decision mm -hmm. on which bike I liked. But I mean, you, it's just tough to commit to that much time. Um, yeah. there's, it's one thing to work and it's one thing to make the video showing it. So yeah. normally if we're testing, you know, I probably did 10 test days on this, these two bikes and we filmed in uh, one of them pretty in depth. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like to do more, but, um, it's, it's a lot of work and a balance between, like you said, not taking away from actually training and racing mm -hmm. and um, being able to do both. Yeah. 
Cool. Logan, what are you thinking for the World Cup then? Because that's obviously a very different sort of thing to cover than the work that you've been doing so far. Have you got a plan for how you want to go about that? Yeah, at least for the first one, I think we have a good plan. Um, We're trying to not necessarily not focus on the race, but the main part of the video is not going to be the race or the results. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess that could change depending on how the race goes, but I think there's plenty of race coverage out there and the people who are following this want to know about the bike, want to know how the bike works at the race, want to know the ins and outs of the team at the race. They don't need to just follow another you know, how was your weekend? Cool clip kind of race edit. Um, those are cool, but there's plenty of people doing good ones out there. So we don't need to follow along. And I think like Nika mentioned earlier, we're doing everything on ourselves, and we're trying to stand out a bit from it. So try to tell uh, a little bit more of a story than just the race weekend story. And uh, yeah, like some more of the behind the scenes. So I think we have a pretty good plan. I think it'll kind of fall in line with the rest of the videos and also go at a world cup so it'll be fresh and new and yeah it'll be cool yeah look forward to seeing it and nico you've uh you've found your mechanic for the season and uh you've been you've had him out here in the u.s and down to costa rica for the last what six weeks four weeks something like that yeah yeah he's been over here for over a month yeah and how's that been going it's nice to have the opportunity to work together that much before the season right absolutely it's it's gone so well i i am really lucky to have ancho i'm so glad that i chose him as my mechanic and that it worked out that he was available to to be able to work with me. Um, he's just so easygoing. He's dedicated to working on the bike, and he he really he's passionate about doing a good job with it. Um, when we got to Costa Rica, I told him just that was the first time we were working together. So normally I wouldn't always bring a mechanic to every smaller race as outside of a World Cup. Yeah. Obviously, it's nice too, but on bigger teams sometimes the mechanics are hired to work for certain events and they're not just on call for every little test session you want to do and yeah. so I, I try to be mindful of that and and not put too much on i guess now i'm kind of like the the boss of the team so my, i could say my staff but my mechanic as well like being mindful to not um over overload his schedule with a bunch of extra stuff but it was important that we worked together before the first race and did a couple of these races and he was so happy to do it he was like man i want to be here working with you i would much rather be here helping you than be at home like chilling out wishing that i was there yeah, so yeah. having that attitude is awesome and w- one of the biggest things for me and i think a lot of riders would agree is that a mechanic can do is get your brakes feeling good Uh because the suspension goes to Fox for us. Um, Most of the big suspension companies have uh, support at the races. So it's not something that the mechanic has to worry about is servicing and, and taking care of the suspension. So after that, most of the parts are fairly mechanical and straightforward, Mm -hmm. but the, the brakes are something that is a moving part hydraulic, um, probably the most complicated part after the suspension yeah. that the mechanic has to look after. And I was like, Ancho, the brakes for me are so important. They need to have a really good bite, not feel spongy and not change during the run. And he said, look, man, I don't mean to talk shit, but I am the best in the world at bleeding TRP brakes. <laughs> and I was like, brother, that is the energy that we need in this team. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, and, and he's, he lived up to exactly what he said. The brakes feel so good. He knows all the little tricks 
to work on those. And we've tested a few different other brakes as well. Uh, we couldn't test every brake under the sun with the limited amount of time we have to, to really accurately go through it. But um, we found like the little tricks that work well with TRP. We're running them with Shimano oil and Shimano hoses, which their hoses are pretty high quality. They mm -hmm. don't expand. And um, the oil seems to be higher quality as well. And the, the TRP brakes are also readily available. Like some of the other stuff that I wanted to try, we got a hold of some 2016 codes, which are raved about in the bike industry. And um, we only were able to get a couple sets of them. So that was definitely something to consider is like the last ones in existence that are new are here. So we don't, if we have a problem, like we only have so many, whereas I bought 10 sets of TRP brakes. So, yeah. and I can buy more. So if there's a problem with the brakes, like we can get them. And um, Andrew has a lot of experience working on those. So it just seemed like the the most reliable, most straightforward option. And I'm very, very pleased with how my brakes are working and the whole bike as well. Yeah. So I think that one of the best parts of my team, like obviously the frame is um, the focal point of this program this year. But choosing my components package was really important to me. And I think that, yeah, my frame is good. It fits me. When I sit on the bike, everything is where I want for my body size, yeah. which is an awesome feeling. But every part on the bike works so well. And obviously, there's a preference in a lot of the categories. There's multiple brands that make something that's really competitive. But everything that I chose was my preference. And... I think that my part, my components package would work well on any bike. Mm -hmm. So um, having that makes me feel really comfortable. And Ancho has done an amazing job of, uh, I think he's, we have the same mindset of all the parts that I chose. I think he would pick yeah. the same stuff on his bike. So um, it's, it's both comfortable for me to ride and his preference of stuff to work on. And we're not overcomplicating things. We have stuff that we're both we're both happy with so nice. you've yeah. got those big old galfa rotors are they 240 or something 246 Ooh. yeah so um gave them a try i mean galfa has been making those and they fit on my frame a lot of bikes you can't fit that on the rear okay but um i mean my my perspective with brakes is that i want as much power as i can like i want it to be super touchy i want to squeeze as lightly as i can and get as much power as i can uh -huh. um 185 pounds i think it's like 80 kg okay so um heavier than some of the other guys racing world cups yeah. not a lot but i'd say like loris probably doesn't need as much power okay um but for me like if the brakes are really sensitive and they hit really hard then i can pull them lighter and sometimes at the bottom of andorra you feel like your hands are worn out and you're, you can't squeeze the brakes hard enough. Yeah. So to have brakes that are really powerful and sensitive, um, I don't know, it's like a, a race car. I'm sure the, the best race car drivers in the world want stuff that's sensitive, not that you have to push harder on it to modulate. So yeah. that's, that's my preference. And I just don't see any downside to running the big rotors for racing anyway. Maybe they might, I don't know, if you're putting it on and off a bike rack or stuff like that, it could be something to consider, mm -hmm. but, um, I think the clearance on a 29 inch wheel with that big rotor is probably more than a 26 with a 200 rotor that we raced for so many years and didn't yeah, have okay. it touching or dragging it 
a rut or anything. So yeah. clearance is clearance. Yeah, they, and they work. Like I've had them. Yeah. I've been using them for a while, and they work. Um, Galfer has some new stuff that we're going to try leading up to the first World Cup. They're from Spain, and we're going over to Spain the week before Lords next week. So um, it's similar to what Commonsol Muckoff was using last year. Some of those shark tooth looking rotors uh, yeah, okay. um, that they have done a bunch of testing with and they say they're seeing really good results from yeah, so yeah. they've got an, an i think those were had some sort of a deal with the team where they were only for the team okay french guys really like to have something that no one else can have <laughs> it makes them feel like they have an advantage um so we i don't think they were allowed to give other teams that rotor but they took what they learned from it and made a new one that we're going to try okay and yeah i don't think 246 is necessary but um, yeah, I didn't see I, it. It mathematically adds power, yeah. it adds leverage to the. So I didn't see any downside to it if it, if it was working for me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've been using them these first couple of races and and riding them a bunch. But um, I, I I think we're not going to need two forty six rotors. I think I like the two twenty threes. They they work well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my mindset about brakes. Uh-huh. I don't. No reason not to go bigger if you can. All in, yeah. Are those sharp teeth? Is that for heat management, basically? I don't know exactly. um, Basically, they try to put the holes, the the vents in the brake rotor in a format that the pad is passed by um, a void at least every place on the pad. Mm -hmm. So a good rotor will have those those holes placed so that it can cool it off. That yeah. There's not one spot on the pad that's always passed by solid metal mm-hmm. that's not um, able to be cooled. Yeah. And I think that the orientation of these vents and the way that the, I don't know if the, the shark tooth look is for um, cooling or, or what, but I, that's the mindset behind the, okay. the rotors. And the, the finish and the material is, is really important too. I've noticed over the years it's like, the finish really makes a big difference for the bite of the rotor. And I don't know exactly what what the best finish is, um, but we've tried some different stuff that some has worked better than others. So okay. Galfers, they've got a lot of experience with um, friction surfaces. Yeah. They, they are huge in MotoGP and make a lot of stuff for motor racing. They're, um, they're from Barcelona. Yeah. That's really big there. So... Um, yeah, and they have a huge factory in Spain, so they they have a lot of resources they can pull from on that side to translate over to bike. Yeah, good stuff. And then part of any preseason has to involve some time against the clock in a race environment, and you guys headed down to Costa Rica for two races back-to-back. Start with you, Logan. How was that from your perspective? Have you been down before with Nikkei? Yeah, this is actually the third year I've been down. Um the last two years, I didn't go to any races. Last year, there was a small race there, but that wasn't really the intent of the trip. And uh, this year, there's the two big races, but it was cool. Um, we obviously been filming all winter up here, so it's cool to get in a new environment. It's hard to make it not feel like a bit of a vacation. You know, it's cold and snowy up here and it's warm down there. Um, there's all new colors and stuff. So from the video side, it looks new and looks fresh and looks like a cool location and yeah, it's cool. The vibe down there is sweet. There's lots of people stoked to be on camera and yelling and a bunch of new faces. So, yeah, it was really cool from the video side. Yeah, nice. It looked yeah, it looked like an awesome trip. And uh, two for two, it's a pretty good start to the season. How did, how did it go from your perspective? 
yeah, I was stoked to to get those two wins, and it might not look like it on the results sheet. Not to take anything away from the guys that I was racing against in saying that, but they they were flying, and a lot of the South American guys really treat that race, the the Continental Championships, mm-hmm. as um, a very important race. I think for their their federation, they get a lot of funding for it. Um, and yeah, some of the guys were they were treating it like it was world champs. Because for them, it, it's like a race that they have a shot at winning. Yeah. So I, they pushed me a lot, and um, I wouldn't have probably rode that fast without guys like that that were um, just pushing the pace in practice, and you could see that they were taking it really seriously. So it, it raised my bar a lot, which is what I needed. Like I, yeah, I went there to get some competition, to push myself, to really ride fast, and. Um, in addition to testing the bikes in a race situation. And I would say it went as well as it could have. Yeah. I felt good on my bikes. I've, I've figured out some stuff, um, running things a little bit stiffer by race day that you never will really learn until you get it in a race situation. Yeah. Um, and the track was, it, it's a good track. It's, it's not, there's not that many sections to separate people. So you have to really look at each place that you can get time and uh-huh. and really get every ounce out of the track as you can because a lot of guys can hit sections similarly. So the sections where you can make time, you have to really maximize that. Um, and the track was mostly the same for two weeks and pretty blown out, which uh-huh. was awesome. Like normally you get to a track and you're like, guys have been training on this already. It's already got braking bumps kind of disappointed but because we were going there to test the bike in a race situation it was good like the rougher the better yeah and it was properly rough there were some huge breaking holes and it's getting blown out for race runs which is the type of stuff you need to do a race to mm-hmm. test um i raced the first week on the low pivot bike the second week i spent more time and raced the high pivot bike just because i wanted to ride both in a race environment and um yeah, I got some valuable information from it. So it was a super productive race. I actually felt really nervous for the the Pan Ams, the the, the second race. Yeah. It was the Continental Championship, which, yeah, would have been really cool to win. I won that race once before in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it was the same sort of thing. You go to South America and guys that you might not always see as such competition at the World Cups at this event, they, um, they're really rising for it. So, um it's a, it's a cool race and I really wanted to win it. Um, I, I kind of felt that position where like, I, I, I felt like I was the fastest guy. I had won qualifying and the race the weekend before, and I won the qualifying at that race. And on race day, I was like, well, this is the big one of the trip. Like this is the, not that the UCI points are super important, but it's a continental championship is the highest level UCI race out of a world cup. Uh-huh. So it would have been cool to grab those points and um, you get the jersey to wear. Luckily, this one you don't have to wear at the World Cup. The European Federation makes you wear it, but the Pan Am you don't. Um, but you get the jersey. The, like it's it's kind of a prestigious thing. It, yeah. it would have just been like a moment that I wanted to capture. So I felt like I, was, uh, I, I wasn't going to... Um, like they weren't going to beat me. I was going to lose the race. Mm-hmm. It, it was that sort of situation. So I was a little bit nervous for that, that race day. I just felt tight. And, um, it's just a good thing to, to go through 
before the season, get that stuff worked out. And um, hopefully at the first World Cup, show up a little bit more relaxed with without those first race nerves. For sure. And any surprises once you got the bikes up to a race pace? Um, I wouldn't say any huge surprises. Uh, I ran them, at least the high pivot bike, I felt like I was, I ran it stiffer than what I would have liked. And I think that I could, on my next one, I will change the linkage a little bit to make it, um, to give it more support through the leverage ratio. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of said in the past that 24, 25% is like the sag that I want to shoot for. Yeah. And if you're running less sag than that, it's because your linkage isn't good. Mm -hmm. And I was running less sag than that. So maybe I should eat my words and say my <laughs> linkage isn't good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I just, I felt like the high pivot and the average gradient of this track was flatter than most world cups. So you can run a stiffer rear and mm -hmm. get the balance of the bike to work better on a flatter yep. average gradient track. So that was to be considered, but I just felt the bike worked fast, was running faster with a stiffer setup. So I was down to like 22% sag, yeah. um, on a 600 spring, which is I think too high. Okay. I think that the, if you're getting up into those spring rates, you're probably outside of a good working range. Um, and you're, you're kind of using that as a compensation to get yeah. back in. Okay. Um, but it was good to learn that and it took going to a race to get on that setup. Uh -huh. So valuable information learned and, yeah. um, to apply for the future and a pretty quick turnaround then from when was that like two three weeks ago and you've got a bike turning up at the end of this week yeah so i had a lot of things like staged ready to go and just wanted to race the bike and confirm some final things before pressing print on yeah a lot of those parts um so yeah i i made a few tweaks after those races and that'll all go into my race frames that are coming. Um, I guess we're recording this podcast on the 12th. They should be here in three days. So that was, yeah, a quick turnaround. But a lot, I mean, the things, I guess why it can be so quick is a lot of the parts like the dropouts, the main pivot yoke, um, the, the links were something that I waited on. But most mm -hmm. of the, the parts to construct the frame I had ready to go and it was just the orientation of where exactly that pivot was going to sit okay. on the main pivot mainly as a yeah. thing to change. Um, so I could tell Frank like, okay, we're going to move this up or down a millimeter, but all the CNC pieces that make the bike yeah. would have been the same. Awesome. So I had that stuff ready to go and just raced it before I told him exactly those pivot locations. Nice. Good stuff, man. It's cool to see the development like, and the process of getting it faster and faster throughout the year. It's awesome that you can do it and turn it around so quickly as well. Let's chat a little bit about downhill southeast. We can't avoid the small hiccup that you had kind of getting ready for the start of the World Cup. So tell us what happened. Yeah, so it wouldn't be a race season without some <laughs> injuries, hopefully more minor than major. Um, but it's all part of the sport and... I broke my finger at the downhill southeast race, my small finger, my pinky. I had a pretty bad fracture, like I would say as bad as you can break a bone. I broke it. Okay. Right in the, and, and bad meaning like a completely 
displaced fracture yeah. of between the knuckle on your fist and the knuckle on your finger, that bone there. I, um, if you go on my Instagram account, I posted a picture of it, um, of the x-ray and it's, mm -hmm. it's completely broken, but it's in the center of the bone and a clean break. There's no ligament. I'd rather that than tear the ligaments out of it or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I clipped a tree. Um, I, it was kind of cold. The race was the end of February here in Tennessee and it's, you got cold mornings and I yeah, just grazed this tree and I thought that I'd, I knew I hit it. I thought I ripped the skin off my knuckles. I, I hit trees all the time, <laughs> riding motorcycles or mountain biking. And yeah, I didn't really think too much of it. Rode the track another 30 seconds. And when I stopped, my finger was pointed completely sideways, oh, 90 man. degrees. And I was like, oh, that doesn't look good, but it didn't hurt. So I, I cause it was cold and there was adrenaline, but I, um, I thought I'd like dislocate it. So I started pulling on it and <laughs> couldn't get it to go back straight. So I was like, all right, well, Obviously this is, uh, this day's over. Maybe I can go get somebody to put this thing back in. So I, I rode down the rest of the track and hit all the jumps with my finger pointed sideways so I could ride with it. But, um, as it warmed up and as that adrenaline wore off, it became a lot more painful. Um, and yeah, obviously a bummer. I don't think I would have done anything different. Like you, how many trees do you pass millimeters from the end of your handlebar? at 30 miles an hour and don't even think anything of it. Yeah. So you do that thousands, 10,000 times. And one time you hit one, it's just part of what happens. Like it's your mountain biking for sure. Fast and mud and close to trees. Like you're going to have issues like that. So I'm glad it's a broken finger and not a bigger issue, but it's definitely not the best timing for the first race. Um, one of my buddies, Jack Berg, he's done a lot of video stuff with us. He filmed a lot of the riding for the first Frameworks video. He films um, a lot of pro motocross guys. He does Justin Barsha's video series, BAM TV. Mm -hmm. And his dad is a surgeon in Tallahassee and, and owns a surgery center. And he's a really good, he does hand, elbow, wrist, and shoulder. So he's mainly arms. So this was in his wheelhouse. Um, and I texted Jack, he was at the Houston Supercross. I was like, hey dude, like I just broke this. Um, can you send the x-ray to your dad and see what he thinks I should do? He's like, oh, my dad says, get it, get it pinned. I was like, cool, um, can, he, can he do it? And he's like, yeah, if you can come down to my house tomorrow, he said, he'll fix it on Monday. <laughs> so having a friend like that and like Dr. Berg is a really good surgeon. He fixes a lot of the motocross riders. Huh. He does, um, shoulders for all the pro motocross guys and he understands that i need to go race again so he told me yeah normally six weeks until this bone is like grown back together but you're gonna feel pretty good in a, in a couple weeks mm -hmm. tape it to the other finger and it's probably not going to be a hundred percent but it's up to you you can race just you know the risk you're taking yeah. you'll, you'll feel it and he's just super logical about it he's like in the, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to be leading up to your race. There's stuff you can do to work around it. If your finger hurts, you're probably doing too much. Uh -huh. So do what you can. And, uh, the finger should be ready right around when you need to ride. Um, just buddy tape it to your ring finger and try to hold on as best you can. So I was really happy to have him. He, he, um, he, so he put two pins to hold it together and normally they would, they would stick out of the skin so that 
pretty far so yeah. that the doctor could then pull them out after uh -huh. the bone is healed. And he cut them so that they sit inside of my skin. Okay. And he said you can ride with them. Yeah. And most doctors probably wouldn't do that for mm. you, like do something like that. Because now they're going to have to cut my skin open and then pull the pins out. Yeah. Most doctors wouldn't do something like that just so you could get back to racing a bike sooner. I guess, I don't know why, but him knowing what I'm up against and being, he used to race motocross himself. He, uh, I, I was just super lucky to have that and to have a buddy who you can just text and wind up a surgery yeah. on a day's notice is, is a very good friend to have. So I, I appreciate sure. that. Yeah. Were you there, Logan, with the camera pointing at this operation or have we avoided that gore fest? <laughs> yeah, we avoided that. I was there when it happened, but didn't see anything after that. Good. It's probably for the best. No one really needs to see that, hey? In the end, it's a small bump in the road. Yeah, like, for sure. Yeah, not like we said, not ideal prep for the first race. I think I'll, I'll be racing either way, giving it my very best. And hopefully this is as close to 100% as it can be. But it's the first race of a long season and we'll, we'll get back on track shortly after. So yeah. in, uh, July, August, this is hardly even remember this. So just grateful. It's, it's only a broken finger. I had good help to get it taken care of as quick as I could. And, uh, we're going to be still racing the first race. So. Yeah. And you've been race prepping your, uh, your standing rider this weekend, right? Your little, yeah. your little brother's been on your bike and, uh, showing what it can do on the hill. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I got a little brother, Colin Mulally, who's 16. His racing age is 17. And he's been doing a bunch of local races over the past few years. And to register a UCI trade team, you have to have two riders. So I inscribed him on my team and he's going to do a couple races with us this year. Um, definitely not have any big expectations for him. I just want him to I just want him to learn, have fun. We'll be there to help him do his best and whatever his goal is, help him get there. Yeah. Um, but he's definitely not uh, taking things as seriously as the top juniors in the category. Um, he's a real stylish rider. He raced the bike yesterday and did the sickest scrub of the last jump of anyone. Didn't have the fastest time, but um, <laughs> I'd say it's a good combo. If I can smash through rocks and roots straight really fast and colin can look good on jumps then we've got a good team. job done is colin going to feature in the videos then logan once we get to the world cups i'm sure we'll do something funny with him yeah yeah he's definitely <laughs> got some style you need to get him at a whip off somewhere yeah absolutely he's a very stylish rider so yeah excited that um we can be kind of giving this experience to our little brother we're going to be taking him to europe for the first time and I remember my first trip to Europe. So hopefully no matter, you know, I don't, I don't know if his goal is to be a pro mountain biker someday, but this is a, a learning experience and a really cool opportunity for a little kid. Definitely, man. That's cool. It's nice that you can do that and take him on the road. Yeah. I'm sure I mean, you'll give him some shit as well. Yeah. I mean, he's going to have to, I, I learned a lot my first trip and uh, most of it was from Justin Leov, who was kind of like my older brother, <laughs> you know, don't leave your locker door open, clean up after yourself, uh, sort of things like that. Taught me how to cook the meals for myself, stuff that I didn't know how to do when I was 17. So I'm sure there'll be a little bit of that. And 
we're his real brothers. So <laughs> give him some extra shit. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Are you, uh, you guys ready to go then? You've got, I would imagine, quite a lot of kits to take over to Europe, hey, Logan? Like with everything for frameworks for the season. Yeah, I think like we mentioned earlier, um, we kind of try to keep it pretty streamlined. So for me, it's not too much. I just have like normal baggage really to go. Mm -hmm. And we're only going for a little over a week, maybe 10 days. So don't have to bring enough stuff for the summer. So um, yeah, trying to get it all in order. Um, obviously, we're learning stuff as we do the videos. So there's kind of some last minute equipment buying we need to do. Um, but yeah, nothing too crazy. So traveling nice. as light as we can. Yeah, <laughs> apart from the pits. Are you taking the pits with you? Uh, yeah, we're going to take uh, a 10 by 20, so a three meter by six meter easy up. Um, I had one here, so rather than buy another one, we just got a, a canopy reprinted for it. Um, luckily, United changed their baggage protocols. Mm -hmm. So I think like with the pandemic, people weren't traveling as much. So they did some things to encourage traveling and including sports equipment as a, as a bag at no extra fee is something a lot of the airlines did. Um, and Logan and I both have the gold status with United, so we can get three check bags for free. And those could technically be three bike boxes. So whether they have bikes in them or not, they're going to be full of what we need to go overseas. So we, we got to be creative a little bit with the packing. Um, we're not, and, and I've raced for Aaron's team the past couple of years. So I, I treated it like it was his money, but we're not swiping a corporate credit card when we go to the airport check-in anymore, where it's like, yeah, whatever it costs, just give me the bill. <laughs> like we got to be smart about what we're bringing over there. Um, but yeah, I think it's some, some creative packing. We've got, uh, Ancho has been here at my house and we made a list of all the parts we're bringing. So everything's pretty much here now at my mm -hmm. place, North American based. Luckily, Maxis is sending all the tires over there, which is a heavy thing to carry. WD-40 is sending all the cleaning stuff over there, which is nice. also pretty heavy. So a lot of the sponsors have helped out by delivering stuff. WTB sent 10 big bottles of sealant over there, so I don't have to carry all that. But um, we kind of just split up what we needed. Um, and a lot of it's for the first race, and we'll top it up when we go to Fort William for the second yeah. race. But uh, yeah, just some creative packing that I think most mountain bikers would appreciate to uh, yeah get everything we need over there. And once we get it there, hopefully we can keep it for the season, like the tents and everything. We're just going to take there once. And Ancho will look after our sprinter van in Europe, and we'll have a base there, which is really nice. It's it's tough for a North American-based team to have when, you, when you've got, what is it, seven of the races this mm -hmm. year are, are in Europe and pretty close by. Um, it's tough for guys coming from the U.S. to have everything they need over there and have set up a base from another country. So yeah. having a, I, I really needed to find a European-based mechanic and finding Ancho was a really good fit. Perfect. And it, I'm sure there's going to be a huge amount of buzz around the project as we get into the, the World Cup season, even more so than there probably already is. But what's the response been like from the other races? Have, have many people been in touch? I'm interested to see them poking around it when we get to the first race. Yeah, I, I got a lot of positive, quick comments. Um, Loic responds to a lot of my stories with the hard eye emoji, <laughs> which is super cool. I'm glad that other guys are are into what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but I haven't really seen a lot of them yet. It's preseason. I'm excited in Lords for them to see it. The, the new bike that I'm getting looks like a production bike. Mm -hmm. I had my mechanic from YT, Ben Arnett. 
he worked with me for two years as a race mechanic. Um, and now he's, uh, an engineer for one-up components yeah. and he's done a few of the Cro-Mag bikes. He used to work for Cro-Mag mm -hmm. as well. So he has some experience and I had him design this bike for me and all the pieces, all the CNC parts are much more refined than the first bikes that I have now. As I said before, I tried to make these two first prototypes as simple as I could. Didn't want to spend extra money to make it look a certain way or optimize for weight. Yeah. I just wanted a proof of concept and knew that there would be some things to improve. And these, these, this, frame that I'm getting the third one is um very much a production looking bike it uses so we, we're going to use all transition spire hardware okay. which they do a great job all their bolts their bearing retention they use a the bearings pushed into a lip and then a circlip holds it in mm -hmm. and then they use really nice aluminum hardware so instead of trying to redesign something and spend more money to custom order it we just bought all the pack the bearing bolts complete hardware package from transition oh, so you cleaned them out of spares <laughs> <laughs> maybe but then if, if something goes wrong too i can go to a transition shop and get the bolt yeah um so this bike is going to look much more finished than my bikes it has a very similar feel to it using the same tubing i thought frank hit the nail on the head choosing mm -hmm. the tubing but all the cnc parts a lot of it that we were welding two halves to just make it it was cheaper to to weld or to cnc um a smaller piece of yeah. aluminum so we were using two halves welded together now we made one piece which was more expensive but has less chance of of something getting out of tolerance when yeah, it's welded yeah. so when when you look at the details of the third bike it's going to look like a production bike and i'm excited for to be at the world cup and other riders to see that you know this is not a home poke deal this is like a, a real bike that i think looks race ready so excellent you mentioned the word production bike are we any closer to that i think you were like vaguely interested in doing maybe a short run at some point are you are you getting more keen on putting some of these out there in the wild or is that still on the back burner I'd love to, but my mindset is still that I need to prove that these things work 100%. Um, and I didn't leave any stone unturned before I put it into production. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, of course, one step closer, the, the more renditions of the bike I go through, the, the closer I get. Yeah. And for sure now, I mean, these bikes are expensive. And every time I pay for a new one to be made, I'm thinking more about being efficient with what I'm getting, not just buying something to test, but is this also something that could go into production as it is? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely considering it. And, and that, that, that is definitely an interest of mine as to, especially with the response to the whole program. A lot of people are already asking me, where can I buy one? <laughs> so I think, I think there's a demand for them. I think people would be into having one of the bikes. And, um, it's, it's really is, it's something I'd love to do. And whenever the day comes that the bike is ready, I would, I'm stoked to offer it to people, but I have to, for one, make sure I'm hundred percent happy with how the bike rides and then beat the shit out of it for a long time to make sure no weird issues arrive. Yeah. Give it to a bunch of my friends at Windrock that treat their stuff terribly, have them <laughs> treat it like their own, ride it, never wash it, yeah. see what happens. You got to get them in the wild. Because a lot of bikes I've had, the issues arise after months of use. Yeah. So um, 
I just want to make sure that if if I'm going to sell something to someone, it's something that I can guarantee. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we're we're closer to that, and it is a goal of mine. Like I've sp- spent a lot of money on these bikes, and it would be awesome to recoup some of it. And I think for that, for the people following, they'd be stoked to have one. So it would be a mutually beneficial deal to yeah. try to sell some of these bikes. And it's definitely something on my radar, but um, just got to make sure it's it's all in the right circumstance. Good stuff. All right, well, we need to uh, go grab some food. But on, on behalf of, uh, I think, the whole mountain bike world, thank you for doing what you guys are doing. Keep at it. Look forward to seeing the videos throughout the season. Hope the finger heals up well and you can get up to top speed pretty quickly. And yeah, we look forward to seeing how you get on. Thank you very much. And thanks, everybody, for their their interest in this. Like I said before, it gives me the platform to get more resources to do cool things and do it even better so um i really appreciate everybody who's taken an interest in my project nice one all right cheers guys thank you all right that's it for this episode with nico and logan i really hope you've enjoyed it don't forget head over to pink bike and join the downtime podcast fantasy dh league and you can be in with a chance of winning some merch at the end of the year a big thanks to Shimano. I've been super impressed with their new gravity-focused flat pedal shoe, the GR9, which features their brand new gravity-optimized Old Tread sole. Super comfy, they're grippy, and they've got loads of nice design features. The GR9 is available now from your local Shimano dealer, or you can check them out over at mtb.shimano.com. Also, a big thanks to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. As a downtime listener, you can get 15% off all of their awesome rim-only products for the month of March. All you need to do is to use the code WEARRIMS2022. That's WEARRIMS, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2022 at the checkout over on weareonecomposites.com. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch. And forward slash EP if you'd like a copy of the first issue of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today, but until next time, get out and ride.